Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to cover Genesis 6-11 and Moses 8. Which is the flood. Yep. And this is a challenging scriptural block, especially if you teach Sunday school, or maybe if you're a seminary teacher, or you want to sit down with young children and talk about the flood. Uh, How literal is this? Is it figurative and symbolic? There's a lot of questions that a lot of people have. Mike, what's your take on the flood? Well, Bryce, I, I wasn't there, and I certainly don't know. Genesis seven nineteen and 20 says that all the high hills, everything under the whole heaven was covered. It seems to indicate that the hills really in the, in the Hebrew of the harim, the mountains, that they're covered by waters. Now, I also see some wiggle room here. I want to give space for all kinds of interpretations. For example, where it says that Caesar Augustus taxed the whole world, that the whole world should be taxed in the gospel narrative. I don't think it means that the Caesar taxed Madagascar or he went to make sure that the Eskimos paid their taxes. I think it was from the perspective of the author that was writing the story. So there are biblical scholars that look at the text and they see this opening up the possibility as a localized flood. To them, remember, the ancients looked at the fringe mountains as far as they could see as kind of the pillars of heaven that held up the rakia, that held back the cosmic waters. I don't believe there's cosmic waters above a dome over the earth, but the ancients did. And so perhaps this was localized. I mean, that is an option. And we give you a really good quote by John Walton. I really like his scholarship on how the ancients could have viewed the flood from their perspective. I think that's one way to interpret it. But clearly, uh, modern prophets have looked at this as a global flood. Donald Perry has an article called The Flood and the Tower of Babel. We'll link it in the show notes, where he gives his argument that, hey, this is global. He's taking all of this literally. Now, all that being said, I don't know. I'm open to all kinds of interpretations. I think that in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we can give space for all kinds of positions on this. My testimony of the gospel of Christ is not going to hinge on whether every single piece of earth is covered in water in the flood as described in the Genesis narrative. I think really— our students aren't necessarily concerned with the literalness of it. But I think sometimes, Bryce, a big question that students have is, well, this seems like a really mean thing to do. And that's what I want to talk about is I want to correct some of the natural concerns that people have about the nature of God when we see that he destroys. God is kind and gentle and loving. So when God destroys... There's this fear inside of us that maybe my hope of his kindness is wrong, and this is what he really is. He is vengeful. That's one of the things I want to talk about later on in this podcast is why does the Lord destroy? Because there are numerous societies in the scriptures that are destroyed. So at what point does the Lord destroy, and what's the message that I can take home there? So we'll get to that in a minute. Bryce, I guess— I'm going to look at the flood a little bit differently. I'm going to look at the flood as another creation. This is a recreation, and God's going to put us under covenant. Yeah. 
So this very much is a do-over. And if you look at the normal plan for each one of us, we are to be born physically, naturally upon the earth. I come into this earth, and then as I embrace God, as I embrace the restoration, as I embrace Jesus, I'm supposed to let my natural man die. There's supposed to be a death of some sort and a burial, and then I come out in newness of life, and that burial is my baptism. And so I die, and I'm buried, and I come out, and I renew that life, and I'm born again, and all that imagery that we see in the Scriptures. Well, this is the earth going through that. This is kind of a symbolic version of the earth dying spiritually, being buried in water, and coming up out of that water a new creature. So this very much is a do-over. And the number eight is often symbolized as a start over. If you think about the number seven, that seven represents complete or whole or perfect because God created the earth and completed it in seven days. So seven would be the symbol of complete or whole. Eight would be starting over and doing it again. So eight is the symbol of a do-over. So at what age do we typically get baptized in the church? At age eight, how many people will be saved on the ark? Eight people will be saved. It's a do-over. So yes, you can look at the destruction side of the fall, but it's very helpful to see we all have to die spiritually and renew ourselves, just like the earth is going to do in this episode of the flood. You know, Bryce, I really like reading this from that perspective. If we read it this way, I think we can get out of some of the literal uh, logical boxes that we can really get snagged in. And so that's a really good reading. But let's jump in. There's some fascinating scholarly history that I really want Mike to touch on. One of the great evidences that Joseph Smith was indeed an inspired prophet is to watch what he does with Enoch that he is going to do things with Enoch that scholars won't discover for many, many years after Joseph Smith. There's no way he could have known when he put the book of Moses together what scholars would discover many, many years later. Yeah. The things that he's doing with Mahija, the individual, and Mahuja, the place name, that stuff's coming after Qumran. So we are going to start in Genesis 6 with the first four verses, a very strange passage talking about the sons of God and the daughters of men, because these four verses are a big springboard into why the flood happens according to this narrative. I love taking this weird passage in Genesis 6 and going, it's all Jesus. And so I'm just going to read these four verses in Genesis 6, and then we are going to try to unpack this from the perspective of the really old Enoch literature. And then we're going to look at it in the Psalms. We're going to see the things that are happening in Genesis 6, 1 through 4 in the Psalms. We're going to see clearly lines being drawn, battle lines, good guys, bad guys. Then we're going to go to how Jesus interprets this in one of my favorite passages in the Gospels, the passage where he says, whom do men say that I am? So here we go. Genesis 6, 1 through 4. It came to pass that when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he that is also flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years." 
there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And then verse 5 says, God saw the wickedness, and it was very great, and then God is sorry in verse 6. He's sorry that man is on the earth, or he's full of this deep pity. Now, just in case you're thinking, well, that's Genesis, and Joseph completely replaces that in the JST, Moses 8 covers those same things. Now, it adds to it, it clarifies, but this is the first 22 verses of Moses 8. It's that same conversation. So it really is kept by Joseph in the JST version. So there's got to be something here, Mike. Something's going on. So my take on this is that this is the backdrop to much of the material in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, especially in some of the passages that may seem strange to us or unfamiliar. The idea of these sons of God that are coming down is coming to us from the Enoch literature. And it's in the book of the Watchers, the first 36 chapters of the book of Enoch. And the watchers are these individuals, they're the angels, we call them the ear from Daniel 4. They run counter to the ideas that the scribes who produce the text in the Bible believe in. Okay, what does that even mean? When, when I say that these watchers run counter to the ideas that the scribes who produce the text of the Bible believed in, what that means is we're trying to read this text, not from our viewpoint, but from the people that put the Bible together. The individuals that edited the Bible probably lived during the time period of the exile when Babylon was causing all kinds of problems, at least for the, for the Jews. They blew up the temple, they took them captive, and from the Babylonian perspective, they believed, the Babylonian people, I'm not saying you have to believe this, I'm just saying they believe this, they believed that their kings were mighty men of renown that came from a race of beings that were godly, that were from another world. And they called these individuals the Apkalu. So the watchers in Genesis 6 can be juxtaposed with the Sumerian Apkalu. In Sumerian, they're going to call them the Abgal, but we're talking about the same stuff. There's always an imitation, isn't there, Mark? There's something There's going on. There's always an imitation oh, yeah. that sounds so much like what we believe in our narrative, but it's always a little bit twisted. I think that Babylon is always going to be juxtaposed with Zion. And this is all throughout all the scriptures. Babylon and Zion are juxtaposed. So Mesopotamia had several versions of the flood story. If you've ever read like the Epic of Gilgamesh or any of these things, they, they have their versions. And in these versions, they had large boats that save humans and animals. And these stories include a group of sages. They're called the Apkalu. They're from another world. They possess great knowledge. They lived prior to the flood, and they were divine. After the flood, according to the Babylonian story, these Apkalu came down, and they mated with humans, and they made semi-divine offspring called giants. Gilgamesh, if you've ever read about him, was considered one of them. He was a giant, a descendant of the Apkalu. So my contention is, is that Enoch, from first Enoch, and Genesis 6 are playing on this tradition, that instead of these divine beings coming from heaven and mating with humans and making great people like the kings of Babylon, the authors of the Old Testament are flipping the script, and they're saying, we acknowledge that there were divine beings that came down from heaven and mated with humans, but they're bad. So this is considered a polemic. A polemic is a literary and theological effort to undermine the credibility of somebody else. In this case, it's the Judean scribes undercutting the credibility of the Mesopotamian 
worldview and religious beliefs. Biblical writers do this frequently throughout the Bible. The strategy often involves borrowing lines and motifs from the literature of the target civilization to articulate correct theology about Yahweh and to show contempt for the other gods. Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is a case study in this technique. This is a textbook case of a scribe or a prophet or a poet flipping the script, using their story, flipping it and saying, nope, you are not the authorized representatives of God. We are. If we can understand that, then we can understand what's happening in Genesis 6. I think this helps us to see the mythological aspect of the flood. I'm not saying there wasn't a flood, but I'm trying to say that there were parts of the flood story that were epic and that they were mythological in the sense that maybe they're not all perfectly historical. I'm inviting all of us to kind of consider this. Now, before I go any further about the watchers, let me just say this. This is not going to be my approach if I'm teaching a gospel doctrine class. If I'm teaching a gospel doctrine class, we're just going to read Moses, and then I'm going to say, do you guys have any questions? And then we're going to discuss the basic lessons like, what can we take from this? How can I have the scriptures be effectual in my life? How can I live the gospel and be a disciple of Christ? I understand that what I'm talking about here is not necessarily stuff that you're going to apply, but I think it helps us to know what's happening in the text. And frankly, I think Jesus is going to be using these ideas to rally his followers, to follow him and know the greatness and grandeur of who Jesus is. And Paul will do the same thing. Paul's approach is going to be, Jesus is so much better than that. And so it's kind of like a foil where you're going to watch one character rise and another character fall. So let's talk about the fall of failing societies and the fall of failing ideas and ideas that are just going down in flames as Jesus comes to say, I am here to save you. Yeah, Paul is going to use this stuff. Some of this stuff on head coverings, that he talks about even can be traced to these ideas. And it seems so foreign to us. And so just know that the authors of the New Testament are quoting First Enoch, and, and Jesus is aware of it too. All that being said, if you go to the text of Genesis 6, the idea of these giants in the earth, they're going to be called the Nephilim. They're going to have lots of different names. The Greeks, when they translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek, they're going to call these gigantes. That's where we get the word giants. And these beings are going to be described and portrayed throughout the Old Testament narrative. So we're going to come back and see this again. Like when they go to conquer Canaan, the spies come back and tell Moses and the leaders of Israel, like these guys are giants in the land. And some of this same stuff is happening. So with that in mind, Know that there's a couple interpretations that Christian churches do with this stuff. And the first one is that this is a description of disobedient angels that are descending from a celestial space and cohabitating with human women and producing a race of giants, just like the text says. Very few people read it that way. Most Christian churches read it in what Dr. Michael Heiser calls the Sethi interpretation, and that is this. It's an alternate explanation that says or tries to understand this in the terms that the sons of God are a pious race who descended from Seth. They're like the covenant keepers, and they sinned by marrying descendants of the enemies of God, and that these individuals, their offspring became pagans, and this is sometimes called the Sethi interpretation. We need to be aware of both interpretations as we're going through this text, because I'm going to see Joseph Smith swimming in both waters. We're going to look at Joseph Smith simplifying this because it's kind of complicated. Let's go to the 22nd Psalm, and 
there's things that clearly point to Christ. In the 22nd Psalm, verse 1, that may look really familiar to you if you've ever read the New Testament. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. Verse 16, for dogs have compassed me and the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Back in verse 8, you can hear the people mocking him on the cross. He trusted on the Lord that he should deliver him. Let him deliver him. Yeah. Bryce, I think you and I can both agree. Psalm 22 has some stuff in here that is related to the atonement of the Savior. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. That's verse 18. And I think, Bryce, that C.S. Lewis knows the scriptures, and I think he's channeling Psalm 22 when Aslan is sacrificed. Yeah. He represents Jesus, right? When he's dying, what do the bad guys say? In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, as Aslan turns himself in to pay for Edmund's mistakes and redeem as he approaches the white witch and all of her hags, this is what C.S. Lewis writes. Lucy and Susan held their breaths, waiting for Aslan's roar and his spring upon his enemies. But it never came. Four hags, grinning and leering, yet also at first hanging back and half afraid of what they had to do, had approached him. Bind him, I say, repeated the white witch. The hags made a dart at him and shrieked with triumph when they found that he made no resistance at all. Then others, evil dwarfs and apes, rushed in to help them. And between them, they rolled the huge lion over on his back and tied all his forepaws together, shouting and cheering as if they had done some brave thing. Though, had the lion chosen, with one of those paws, it would have been the death of them. But he made no noise. Even when the enemy, straining and tugging, pulled the cords so tight that they cut into his flesh. Then they began to drag him towards the stone table. And it goes on and on and on. And they're taunting him. And they're, they're relishing in this. And I think, Bryce, that C.S. Lewis, he's channeling Psalm 22. Because if you look at verse 12, many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round about. And then verse 16, for dogs have compassed me, and the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. So the dogs of Bashan or the bulls of Bashan have surrounded Aslan when he's dying or when Jesus is being crucified and they're laughing. Now, the headquarters for the demons is Mount Bashan or Mount Hermon. So verse 12 is a verse that many of us read and we just kind of skip over. I mean, this is probably not stuff that we talk about, but the idea of the bulls of Bashan or the strong ones, the mighty ones of Bashan, that is coming out of First Enoch. Do you see the connection to giants here? Yeah. Strong bulls, giants, it's yeah. the same imagery. And this area of Bashan was an actual geographical area. So we're going to actually show this to you in the slides. Bashan is an area in northern Israel, mostly on the east of the Jordan River, and it butts up against Geshur and the Sea of Galilee. And the reason why this matters is because of what's going on in First Enoch. So in First Enoch, in the 13th chapter, Enoch gives a description of where he is when he's having this vision, and it's to the south and the west of Mount Hermon. That's a very important place. Now, Bashan can mean or be synonymous with Mount Hermon. So this is First Enoch chapter 6 in verse 4. 
And they all answered him and said, let us swear an oath. These are the, the watchers. They're going to come down and bind ourselves by mutual imprecations, not to abandon this plan, but to do this thing. So they swear all of them together and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it. And they were in all about 200. And they descended in the days of Jared on the summit of Mount Hermon. And they called it Mount Hermon because they had sworn and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it. Now, what are they swearing? Well, they're swearing to wreak havoc on the earth and to take the daughters of men and to basically cause death and destruction. And so later in First Enoch in the 13th chapter, Enoch is just distraught and he's been told to go and tell the leaders of these watchers that the sentence of heaven is that they're not to have peace. And so in the 13th chapter, in the first verse, Enoch goes to them and he says, you guys are not going to have any peace. You're going to have horrible things happen. And then later, if you go towards the middle of the 13th chapter, we read this. I went off, this is Enoch. I went off and sat down at the waters of Dan in the land of Dan to the south and the west of Hermon. And I read their petition until I fell asleep. And behold, a dream came to me and visions fell down upon me. And I saw visions of chastisement and a voice came bidding me to tell it to the sons of heaven. Those are the watchers and to reprimand them. And when I awakened, I came to them and they were all sitting together. And then he goes and he gives them once again, the edict of heaven that they're not to have peace. Now let's go to Psalm 68. And Psalm 68 is a psalm about two mountains, Mount Hermon and Mount Sinai. And they're not friends with each other. These two mountains are in opposition. And like Bryce said earlier, like Babylon is in opposition to Zion. Well, notice verse 8. We read in verse 7 in Psalm 68 about how they went through the wilderness. Verse 8 says, The earth shook and the heavens dropped at the presence of God, and Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. So the congregation of Israel is assembled at Mount Sinai, and God's going to give their law. And then skip down to verse 12. Kings of armies did flee apace, and she that tarried at home divided the spoil. Go down to verse 15. The hill of God is as the hill of Bashan, a high hill as the hill of Bashan. Now, in verse 15, where it says that the mountain of God or the hill of God is as the hill Bashan, the phrase mountain of God is actually mountain of Elohim. Elohim a lot of times is translated as God, Har Elohim, mountain of God in Hebrew. And it can mean mountain of God, but it can also be read as the mountain of the gods. I'm going to read verse 15 in that context, that Bashan is juxtaposed with Sinai. Bashan is the headquarters of where the bad guys are. This is where Enoch gets the vision that the watchers are going down, that God isn't not okay with this. My take is, is that Psalm 68 is showing us the spiritual warfare and the locations of where the generals of each army are located or headquartered. Sinai is Yahweh's headquarters. That's where Jehovah or Jesus is in charge. Bashan is where the watchers are. And if we read verse 15 that way, that the hill of the Elohim or the gods is as the hill Bashan, a high hill as the hill of Bashan. And then look at verse 16. Why ye leap ye, ye high hills? That word, ratzad, can mean 
watch with enmity. In fact, most translators are going to translate this as, why do you look at us with hostility, ye high hills, or Bashan? Why are you being hostile? Why do you have enmity? And the King James translators translate it as leap. And I read that, and I'm like, okay, now that makes no sense. But if we read it that way, verse 16, why are you looking at us with enmity? This is the hill which God desired to dwell in. Yea, the Lord will dwell in it forever. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. So God is staking out his claim. The headquarters for the demons is Mount Bashan. Sinai is Yahweh's headquarters. That's where Jehovah or Jesus is in charge. So then look at verse 18. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men. For thou art rebellious also. The Lord God might will dwell among them. Now skip down to verse 21. God will wound the head of his enemies. Remember what was said to Satan in the garden. Your head is going to get crushed. This is awesome stuff. Verse 22. The Lord said, I will bring again from Bashan. I will bring my people from the depths of the sea that thy foot may be dipped in the blood of thine enemies. I'm going to take my people back and I'm going to lead them to where they need to be. And and it goes on, but this isn't a podcast on Psalm 68. But my point is this is all tied to the mythological backdrop to Genesis 6, to 1 Enoch. Now let's get to what happens with Jesus. So Jesus in Matthew 16 is at this place called Caesarea Philippi. Verse 13 of Matthew 16, Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi. Now, it says coast in the English, but we're not by the beach. This is actually, and we give you a, a picture of this, in the slides, Caesarea Philippi is literally southwest of the peak of Mount Hermon. This is right where Enoch has his vision. And if you go to Caesarea Philippi, there used to be, it's called Banias today, but there used to be a temple to Pan and there was, there's beautiful waters there. It's a beautiful park. You can go and visit it. And there are all these niches carved out of the wall where the individuals that were pagans had these different gods. And Jesus is standing there with the backdrop of this temple to Pan and all these gods that are put in all these little niches. And he's looking at his disciples and he's saying, okay, there's all these gods these people worship. Who do you guys think I am? Simon Peter in verse 16 says, thou art the Christ, the son of living God. And then he says, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And then he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Now, my take on this is when he says, upon this rock I will build my church, I know in our tradition we say the rock is revelation, and that's beautiful. I love that. I also like the idea of eben, a stone. In Hebrew, eben is a crassus of these two words, av and ben, which is father and son. So upon this rock, upon the rock of the father and the son, Jesus is going to fix things. He's going to build his kingdom. But I also like it as this idea that upon Mount Hermon, this rock where the bulls of Bashan where the watchers have staked their claim and swore by the throat that they would take my kids, Jesus is basically a war general, the Lord of hosts. In Hebrew, Yahweh Saveot is this idea of a war general, like the Lord of hosts. And he's saying, I'm taking this, guys. Like, I know you think you're in charge. Mm -mm. 
I'm in charge. I'm the captain. And this is the rock I'm going to build my church. And I think rock can be lots of other things too. I think Peter is a rock. He's going to call him that. I think receiving revelation and following God, God is basically saying to you, you're a rock, be a rock. But I like this idea of the mythological backdrop to First Enoch, a couple of the Psalms, Genesis 6, and that Jesus is using this. And I think his disciples know the Enoch literature. They know these stories and they realize the implications that the king is coming home and he's taking over. So I love it. I love taking this weird passage in Genesis 6 and going, it's all Jesus. There's a lot here. So everything we just covered, you're not going to cover that in church. This is just for those that are wanting to study this. And I think if I was teaching a group of people in church, I would just read this. Moses 8.13, Noah and his sons hearkened to the Lord and gave heed, and they were called the sons of God. So the good guys in Moses 8 are the sons of God. They're the covenant keepers. And when these men, the sons of God, began to multiply on the face of the earth, and the daughters were born unto them, the sons of men saw those daughters that were fair, and they took them wives even as they chose. And the Lord said to Noah, the daughters of thy sons have sold themselves, for behold, mine anger is kindled against the sons of men, for they will not hearken unto my voice. So the whole script is flipped in those verses, and I think what Joseph is doing, this is my take, I think he's simplifying this because, frankly, this is a lot of stuff to unpack with the first Enoch literature, and this is an easier way to portray it. And so Hugh Nibley says that it's the Joseph Smith Enoch which gives the most convincing solution that the beings who fell were not angels but men who had become the sons of God. From the beginning, it tells us mortal men could qualify as sons of God. How? By believing and entering in the covenant. Thus, when Noah and his sons hearkened unto the Lord and gave heed, they were called the sons of God. In short, the sons of God are those who accept and live by the law of God. When the sons of men, as Enoch calls them, broke the covenant, they still insisted on that exalted title. Behold, we are the sons of God. Have we not taken unto ourselves the daughters of men? And so my interpretation of these three verses in Moses is this is what I call a modified Sethi interpretation. Why? I think what Joseph is doing is he's simplifying it. Do I think Joseph Smith knows all this stuff going on in Enoch? I don't know if he does when he's producing this, but as a seer, he certainly could have. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament, and Joseph doesn't correct these ideas. But I think the remnants of the battle lines being drawn and the wicked angels and the righteous fighting, I mean, Joseph clearly knows about that because in the temple, there is a spiritual warfare going on, and those that follow the adversary are at war against those who follow Jesus. And so knowing what we know about the temple, knowing what we know about Joseph Smith in section 129 of the Doctrine and Covenants, he clearly knows about the forces of darkness. I mean, he's introduced to them when he's 14. And simply put, wicked will be destroyed, righteous will be preserved. Now, when Nephi sees the end of the world— and he's told, you can't write about it. John's going to write about it. But he sure hints about it. And so First Nephi chapter 22, it's as if Nephi is saying, look, I can't tell you how it ends. I can't give you the details. But what I can say is evil will be destroyed and righteous will be preserved. That's the message from the beginning of time. And here we are in the flood narrative, basically saying wicked will be destroyed, righteous will be preserved. And if we keep our eyes on that prize and not necessarily all the ramifications of this entire planet being covered with water, it's a do-over, a renewal. That's a message that we ought to champion in our day as we come closer and closer to the second coming. The wicked will be destroyed and the righteous will be preserved.
But that raises an issue that I don't think a lot of people are going to catch this week, that Noah lost his own family members to this cascading evil. The, the, the clash between good and evil had claimed some of his own grandchildren. Noah had granddaughters, at least. And they're not on the ark. And, and I think we could say some. I think there's also a get-out-of-jail-free card, and that's Moses 727. There is. Where the Holy Ghost fell on many, and they were caught up to Zion. So, Bryce, my hope is that his kids were caught up to Zion. Yep. But we don't know, right? But we, it sure seems like yeah. if he, as that some of them yeah. were, you know, kind of were lost to this growing influence. It's hard. This is hard stuff. It is. And now let's deal with the harsh reality of a destruction. And this challenge that we have in our soul that, is he a God that wipes out the earth? Is he angry? Does he get revenge? Because the flood can surely be seen as the Lord just saying, that's enough, and he just destroys everyone. Again, let me bring back some of the plain and precious truths that have been restored in the Book of Mormon. When Lehi comes to America— he gets a condition. He gets the rules of living in America. When Jared and the Jaredites come to America, they get the same rules. In Second Nephi chapter 1, we get Lehi telling us what he was told when he came to America. Starting in verse 7, this land is consecrated unto him whom he shall bring. And if it shall so be that they shall serve him, in other words, if you live on sacred, consecrated, set-apart land and serve God, the rest of verse 7 says it will be a land of liberty, and you will never be brought into captivity. Then verse 9, inasmuch as you keep his commandments, you will prosper, you'll be kept, you'll be blessed, none will molest you, none will take away your land and you'll dwell safely forever. And just as a side note, boy, that sure describes the United States of America to me, that as we have been a moral, God-fearing, obedient people, we have been prospered and kept, and no one has come here and molested us. None of the world wars were fought here in America, and we have dwelt safely forever. But then Lehi got the other side of that, Verse 10, I say unto you that if the day shall come that you reject the Holy One, so if God has been so abundantly bounteous to you in giving you this glorious, wonderful land, and you turn against God, verse 11 has the consequences. He will bring other nations among them. He will give them, meaning the other nations, power, and they will take away from you the land of your possession and you will be scattered and smitten. Boy, if anything describes Israel in the Old Testament, it's that phrase right there. As soon as you reject God and all his goodness, then other people will come and take away your lands. So that's kind of the condition of God giving you a sacred place to live. Now, let's go back in time, but forward in the Book of Mormon, and turn to Ether chapter 2, the brother of Jared is given the exact same conditions when he comes to America. Now, that was before Lehi, but it's later on in the Book of Mormon. And notice, it's the same condition. Starting in verse 8, he had sworn in his wrath unto the brother of Jared that whoso should possess this land of promise from that time henceforth and forever. So if God in his goodness goes out of the way to bring you and your ancestors to this promised land, 
that you should serve him, the true and only God, or they should be swept off when the fullness of his wrath should come upon them. Verse 9, he's going to repeat that same thing. And now we can behold the decrees of God concerning this land, that it is a land of promise. And whatsoever nation shall possess it shall serve God, or they shall be swept off when the fullness of his wrath shall come upon them. Now listen to this clarification. And the fullness of his wrath cometh upon them when they are ripened in iniquity. In other words, there is a point where the Lord says, I will not allow wickedness to get beyond this. If wickedness hits this point, I have to cleanse it. So now in verse 10, he's going to clarify what is that point. He says, this is a land which is choice above all other lands. Wherefore, he that doth possess it shall serve God or shall be swept off. For it is the everlasting decree of God. And it is not until the fullness of iniquity among the children of the land that they are swept off. And so Moroni is now writing to us in the latter days. He says in verse 11, This cometh unto you, O you Gentiles, that you may know the decrees of God, that you may repent, because you're living on sacred soil, he's implying. And if you continue in your iniquities, you will be swept. So please understand that the Lord cleansed the earth because their wickedness hit some massive level of fullness of iniquity, and the Lord said, that's it, I can't tolerate it. So what qualifies you to be swept off? Let me just give you a few examples from societies that have been swept off, because will the United States of America be swept off American soil? And the answer, I would assume, is yes. And that's the second coming. That's the cleansing that has to occur at the second coming. That will be the sweeping. So maybe one barometer we ought to pay attention to is how close is the United States at hitting the fullness of iniquity? Because that might be a very significant measure of how close is the second coming. So what are some of the things that constitute the fullness of iniquity that might justify the Lord in cleansing that city? or that nation, or maybe even the entire earth. Because there are several. If you think about it, we've got the city of Ammoniah in the Book of Mormon. They were swept off. We have the Nephites at the end of the Book of Mormon. They were swept off. We have Sodom and Gomorrah was swept off. We have the Jews repeatedly in the Old Testament are going to be swept off. Noah's people will be swept off. It could be argued that the Jaredites got swept off. So if we go back and look at some of these societies, I think we can make a significant list of how much the Lord will tolerate, and at what point does he say, that's it. So let's ask the question, why was Noah's society swept off? Now, I know you're going to ask, well, where's all the righteous? Where are all the righteous people? Don't forget that Enoch gathered them into his city. Yeah, Moses 7.27, mark that verse. And they were so righteous that they were swept off the earth in a righteous way. So please don't think that the whole earth turned against God because a massive amount, and we don't know their numbers, were gathered into Zion and taken into heaven. So everyone that was left, you can imagine, is probably growing quickly to the fullness of iniquity. But the Lord's going to give us a because statement in Moses. It's also found in Genesis. If you'll go to Moses chapter 8 and Genesis chapter 6, 
verse 28 in Moses, it says, The earth was corrupt before God, and it was filled with violence. I think a lot of people don't add that to the narrative of Noah. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, and all flesh had corrupted its way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for, that's a significant word. It means, here's why. It's not just willy-nilly. It's not random destruction. The world is going to be destroyed because the earth is filled with violence. Now, what fascinates me is after the flood is over, And the Lord makes a covenant with people. Why would he say this? So I'm in the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis 9, 10 through 15 in the appendix of your Bible. We're now done with the book of Moses. Moses only goes to Genesis chapter 6, verse 13. And this is now beyond that. So now I'm in the appendix of your Bible, Genesis 9, 10 through 15. After the flood is over, the Lord comes down and says in verse 11, Surely blood shall not be shed only for meat to save your lives. And then verse 12. Now tell me, why does he throw this in? Unless it had something to do with the reason for the flood. A land that was filled with violence, what else were they doing? So he says in verse 12, For man shall not shed the blood of man. For a commandment I give that every man's brother shall preserve the life of man. And in mine own image have I made man. Why is he so specific about that? I have to believe that they were mercilessly killing each other. And they weren't preserving each other's lives. Now, as an example, think about another destroyed society, that being Ammoniah. They took women and children, they threw them into a fire and burned them. Do you see why maybe Ammoniah got destroyed? Now, here's another example of a destroyed society. Mormon's people at the end of the Book of Mormon got destroyed. Now, I know this is hard to stomach, so bear with me, but the Lamanites were killing the Nephite men and feeding their flesh to their wives and their their children. Now, that's horrible. That's what the Lamanites were doing. But listen to what the Nephites were doing. Mormon writes to his son Moroni in Moroni 9, Notwithstanding this great abomination of the Lamanites, it doth not exceed that of our people. For behold, many of the daughters of the Lamanites have they taken prisoners, and after depriving them of that which is most dear and precious above all things, which is chastity and virtue... And after they've done this thing, they did murder them in a most cruel manner, torturing their bodies even unto death. And after they have done this thing, they devour their flesh like unto wild beasts because of the hardness of their hearts, and they do it for a token of bravery. They were abusing, torturing, murdering women, and then eating them. Now, if that's what's happening in Noah's time, do you understand why there was a flood? The earth was filled with violence. So those little glimpses into other destroyed societies paint a very, very different picture of Noah's time.
Well, I also think, Bryce, what we're acknowledging is the difficulty of the text. It's fragmented, but I think what I see you doing is you're taking the totality of the picture from all the standard works and saying, look at these societies as a collective, and by picking different aspects of each individual society, you're painting a picture to help us flesh out the things that are missing of in the text. Of a kind God. Right, a different who view. Who was tolerant up to a certain point and then had to say, right. that's it. Now, I want to go back and point out how long did the Lord give them? Noah preaches for 120 years. So instead of reading the flood narrative and thinking, oh, God is a destructive God, then getting a little bit worried, we need to understand the level of wickedness they must have hit. We know the earth was filled with violence. We know that other societies, when they were burning women and children and eating women, we know that they were wiped out. And yet the Lord still gave them 120 years to change and Noah pleading with them. And he sent a prophet and that's his MO. That's his method. There's an absolute telling verse in 2 Nephi. 2 Nephi 25 verse 9 Nephi's talking about the destruction of the Jews, and he ends with this sentence, never hath any of them been destroyed, save it were foretold them by the prophets of the Lord. Everyone gets warned before they're destroyed, and warned repeatedly. I mean, think about Ammoniah. Go back to the Book of Mormon and think about Ammoniah. First comes Alma. Alma is rejected. And then he sends one of them, he sends Amulek to warn them. And when they reject Amulek, who does the Lord send next? Zeezrom. He converts Zeezrom right in front of them. He takes one of their own chief bad guys, converts him right in front of their eyes, and then he becomes another witness. And then when they reject Zeezrom, do you remember when they go into the prison and they're going to beat Alma and Amulek and mock them? The last witness is always the earth. The Lord tears down the prison and destroys them in the prison. And then come the Lamanites and destroy the city of Ammoniah. We're not going to take time and look at all the other aspects of the fullness of iniquity, but I've included in the show notes a list of eight items that I've identified and others have identified as aspects of the fullness of iniquity, where we've gone through the scriptures and we've looked for because statements, where the Lord says, I'm going to destroy that society because of this. Now, one take-home message is that these are the things to keep out of your family and your home. I have heard Latter-day Saints say things like, well, that movie's only rated R because of violence, so it's okay. And yet here's a society that's being destroyed because they were filled with violence. These are the things that get societies destroyed. They clearly destroy families and individuals as well. So we ought to be very careful about them. So as you think about the flood, yes, the Lord destroyed the earth. But he did so because after 120 years of preaching, as loudly as Noah could, they hit the fullness of iniquity. And if you think about it, if they keep having children, the Lord is going to have to send his innocent spirits down into that environment. So the Lord says, that's it. And he draws a line and he cleanses the earth. Powerful message. 
We can also see his character in Genesis 6, like in verse 6, where it says, it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth. Joseph's going to change that in the JST, that it repented Noah that I have created them. What's interesting is you can read that verse a couple of different ways. This is actually on the 10th slide. It says, and it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. And the RSV, or the Revised Standard Version, it's another translation, it reads as follows, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved into his heart. The word nacham is a word that means to be filled with pity or compassion or sorrow. And the King James translators took verse 6 of Genesis 6, and they portrayed him as one who was repenting and Joseph doesn't like that. Joseph Smith is saying, you know what? God doesn't need to repent. He's not a man that he needs to do this. But I really like this verse in its original in the sense that it shows God's pity or compassion because Naham is this word that can mean, I'm just so deeply sad. And if you go to Moses 7, 28 and 29, 31 and 37 through 40, all those verses that we talked about before in Moses about God's deep and moving compassion for his children, I think that is the portrayal that I would want to emphasize. Yeah. So that's kind of a look at what's happening on the earth. Let's take a look at what's happening on the ark. Because that ark is a powerful symbol of God's ability to save us and preserve us in light of a wicked world. God can preserve the righteous. And that ark is a symbol. And of all things, it certainly is a symbol of the temple. Yeah, absolutely. The ark is a great symbol uh, for the temple. And I, I really like what Friedrich Weinreb said about the ark. He talks about the nature of how it's described in the word that's used, and the word is teba. And this ark, or teba, or box as it's called, is something that only appears here and with the narrative of Moses. Otherwise, the ark has a different name, Aron. It's, it's the ark of the covenant that's transported with the Israelites and brought to the temple. And it's a different word and a different conception. And so Professor Weinreb gets into this idea that the ark or the teba that carried Moses through the water and preserved his life also was what preserved mankind. And he talks about the ark as a symbol for the word. He uses this phrase that he says that the word carries life through time. And I think that's just a beautiful image. The Teba, the ark carrying life through time. That's fascinating, Mike, because I'm thinking of Helaman chapter three, where uh, Mormon throws this in as he's talking about the Nephites growing in wickedness and the Lamanites are about to grow in righteousness. He says, and we see that whosoever may lay hold upon the word of God. And then he gives these three images of the word of God. Well, I guess four, if you consider lay hold. So the word of God is like an iron rod that you lay hold of, which is quick in power, which shall divide asunder. So there's another image. The word is like a sword that divides. So it's like a rod that you can hold on to. It's like a sword that divides. It divides asunder all the cunning and the snares and the wiles of the devil and leads the man of Christ in a straight and narrow path. So now it's like a compass. It's like the Leahona. And then notice this last one. It leads the man of Christ in a straight and narrow course across the everlasting gulf of misery, which is prepared to engulf the wicked and lands their soul. Yea, their immortal souls at the right hand of God. The word lands your soul on the right hand of God. Tell me that's not an imagery of an ark or a boat 
that's carrying you through the gulf of the wickedness. So there's a clear image to the word and an ark. Yeah, I, and I'm only finding Viner talking about the tuba as a as the word. This ark or box or tuba, whatever you want to call it, is clearly carrying life. And so I really like that passage that you shared from the Book of Mormon. As far as it being a prototypical temple, the ark that is, uh, uh, Michael Morales did his dissertation on what he calls the tabernacle prefigured cosmic mountain ideology in Genesis and Exodus. And he wrote this back in 2011. And so a lot of the things I'm sharing are going to come from him. And also I want to give a shout out to Jeffrey Bradshaw, who has done so much work. And he even wrote an article called Floating Temple. And so we link that in the slides. I mean, this is just beautiful stuff. So I'm going to go through this list quickly because you can go read about it on your own. And it's one of those things that maybe you'll share a couple of those in a lesson or something, whatever resonates with you. So the first thing that Morales mentions is the description. So if you go to the sixth chapter of Genesis and you do a careful reading of verses five through 22, there's no description of sails or rudders or oars. It's just this description of this teba and what is it? And it doesn't, it doesn't really say. Now there's a reference in verse 16 to a window, which is a lot of fun. The Sohar, I mean, you can look in the footnotes and read that and the connection with Ether 2 is provocative. I think that's something you would want to look into. But just the description, that it isn't really described as a boat. And then Morales writes, he says, this isn't a boat and Noah was no captain steering his own fate. You see, from Morales' perspective, this is God running the show. God tells him how to do it and God is making this work. And this, Bryce, really reminds me of other stuff in the Book of Mormon with the Jaredites, right? Same kind of stuff. Right, they had a closed vessel. They were completely dependent upon the Lord. They were going to go wherever he blew them. I mean, fascinating. The second thing is that it's revealed by God. The pattern to how to do this is revealed by God. Another thought is the ark is in three divisions, and so is the tabernacle. So a couple others. It says in the text that it is using gopher wood, and this is a possible piece of wordplay with the juxtaposition of the word for pitch, gopher. So you've got this word for pitch, which is super close to the word for atonement, which could be connected to, which is, because the pitch is covering, kafar. Kafar is the Hebrew word for, we're going to use that for atonement, to be covered. It's the idea of the wood being used as a pun for the atonement of Christ. Fascinating stuff. Also, creation themes. There's a couple strands of text here, and so some scholars call this J and P, the Yahweh and the priestly author. And so, to be short and speaking just on that, in the show notes, we're going to link it where it's color-coded, and we're going to give you stuff that you can look for, because clearly they're talking about different things. I mean, for example, are they taking the animals in by sevens, or are they taking them in by twos? Was the flood for 40 days, or was it for 150 days? Did it rain, or were the waters of the great deep broken up, and the rakia was collapsed, and the waters above the rakia came down, or the firmament? And the notion is, is that there's two different authors. But from one perspective, from the priestly perspective, it is the redoing of creation, that this is a creation theme. And if you remember from Genesis chapter 1, in scholarship, that scholars look at this and say, that's the priestly author where the cosmos is created and the words that are used in Genesis 1 are also here because scholars look at this and say, the priestly author is talking about creation themes. And so you can pull on that thread. Another motif is the idea of the mountain. You see, on the mountaintop is where the ark rests and the cosmic mountain was 
the Garden of Eden. And according to the creation themes in many cultures, when the waters of creation receded, that rock that was the first thing to break the waters was the amphalos or the navel of the earth. Many call it the eben shatia or the foundation stone. That was the foundation of mankind or the place where the Holy of Holies would be. And so the idea is when the ark rests on Mount Ararat, the place where the waters receded becomes another creation narrative. It's another Garden of Eden. And so the mountain motif is really provocative, especially when we get into the idea of the covenants that they make. I mean, if you do a careful reading of Genesis 9, they're talking about what they can eat, they're talking about clothes, and they're talking about covenants, and they're building altars. And one more that I want to throw in, the Lord says, come in unto the ark. That's his invitation. He says, let your, you and your house come in unto the ark. And that's a phrase he's going to repeat often when he says things like, no unclean thing will come in unto it. Yeah. And I think that invitation is come into my sacred place, come unto me. And that invitation to come into the ark is another example. So many. The last one that we're going to talk about is the timing of the event. If you look in the text, note that it's in the 601st year of Noah's life, in the first month, on the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up. That's Genesis 8.13. The specific wording of this verse would have hinted to the ancient readers that there was ritual significance to the date. Note that it was the first day of the first month in Exodus 40, verse 1, when the tabernacle was dedicated, and it was at the New Year festival in 1 Kings 8.2, when the temple and when the ark comes to rest at the temple. And so some scholars say things like, the same symbolism is applied to all three. Well, it was the first day of the week when Jesus rose from the dead. There it's it that is. do over and start over again. Yeah, there it is. So I really like this as much as I think it's really awesome and I love to geek out on it. The main thing is the main thing about who is this God and why do these things happen and what does this mean? I think another main thing is this is a recreation and God's going to put us under covenant to take care of each other. And that's kind of what's coming out of the ninth chapter. And I love one more main thing, and that is this is a pattern of how to follow a prophet. If that's the only thing we get out of this story, I think that's a valuable one, that this is how you follow a prophet. Let me introduce this with what the Lord said in Jackson County or about Jackson County as an explanation as to why Jackson County was going to be kicked out of their lands. In section 101 of the Doctrine and Covenants, he says there were jarrings and contentions and envyings and strifes and lustful and covetous desires. In other words, there was wickedness. They were not living a celestial law. They couldn't build a celestial city. And then this warning, they were slow to hearken unto the voice of the Lord their God. Therefore, the Lord their God is slow to hearken unto their prayers and to answer them in the day of their trouble. In the day of their peace, they esteemed lightly my counsel. But in the day of their trouble, of necessity, they feel after me. Prophets speak in the day of peace. If we do not follow prophets in the day of peace, we often find that it is too late in the day of trouble. So I find it so very significant that Noah and his family got on the boat with no clouds in the sky. Chapter 7, verse 4, For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth, 
for 40 days and 40 nights. When they got on the boat, there was not a cloud in the sky. That's when prophets come. That's when they warn. And that's the day to get on the boat. Now, can you just picture, I want you to just be a teenager and get on that boat when there's not a cloud in the sky. Now, I get the impression the boat was not moored in the sea. I'm guessing Noah built that boat in the middle of the land, and it just is going to lift up and save them. So can you imagine how much faith it took to get on the boat? Now, wake up the next morning. Don't you peek out to the sky and look for clouds? Don't you want to reinforce your faith and say, yep, here comes the rain, and there's no rain the next day? Now, how many of you get off the boat? I love the same imagery in the story of Naaman the Syrian who has leprosy, and he's told by Elisha, dip seven times in the Jordan River. Now, that alone took faith, because this is a silly way to cleanse leprosy. We have better rivers in Damascus, but I'll do it. Now, how much leprosy falls after one dip in the river? None. Do you get out of the river? Are you a one-dip member of the church? Are you a no-clouds-in-the-sky-get-off-the-boat type of member of the church? So he dips again. No change. He dips a third time. No change. Do you see the element of faith? One of my favorite scriptures is in section 21, where the Lord at the organization of the church gives us a prophet and says, his words ye shall receive in all patience and faith. It takes patience and faith to follow a prophet in the day of peace. Now, everyone follows a prophet in the day of trouble. That's easy. But the prophet usually cannot help you in the day of trouble. We talked last year in the Book of Mormon about getting out of Zarahemla before it burns to the ground. I guarantee the prophet came when there was no fire in Zarahemla. And if you wait until there is fire, you're probably not getting out safely. Do you trust the Lord? Do you trust the prophet? And in the day of peace, do you jump on that boat? Because it is my testimony to all of you that if you wait to follow a prophet in the day of trouble, it will be too late. Someday, I believe, we're going to have a Noah-like test, and we're going to be asked to get on a boat without a cloud in the sky and trust God, trust the prophet. Yeah, excellent. So I want to talk a little bit about Genesis 9. Verse 5, about the blood being required if you kill. And verse 12 talks about this token that God's going to make that is attached to the covenant. And so verse 13 says the bow is going to be a token. And the, the covenant is this establishment of this relationship with Noah to God. Verse 9 says, I will establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. And they're told to be fruitful and multiply and bring forth abundantly in the earth. That's verse seven. 
Now, you've got to connect that with a JST change that I don't hear very many people connecting. We often say that the rainbow is the sign that he won't flood the earth again. And so every time there's a rainbow, oh, the second coming isn't this year because that's the sign that he won't destroy the earth. But he clarifies why he chose a rainbow as a token. Find the JST of Genesis 9, 21 through 25 in your appendix. And he says, and the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant which I made unto thy father Enoch, that when men should keep all my commandments, Zion should again come on the earth, the city of Enoch which I have caught up unto myself, and this is mine everlasting covenant, that when thy posterity, listen, Latter-day Saints, when thy posterity shall embrace the truth and look upward, like we're looking at a rainbow, right? When we look upward, then shall Zion look downward, and all the heavens shall shake with gladness, and the earth shall tremble with joy, and the general assembly of the church of the firstborn shall come down out of heaven and possess the earth and shall have place until the end come. And this is mine everlasting covenant, which I made with thy father Enoch. Now, that's a totally different take on why the rainbow is the symbol that we need to remember. When we look up at the rainbow, we are looking up and remembering the promise of God to bring Zion down and that we will unify the Zion of old and our current Zion. So we need to be the people that embraces the truth and build Zion on earth so that the Zion of Enoch can come down and join us again. That's why we look at rainbows. And that's what we think of when the bow is in the sky. It's kind of like connecting two societies, the Zion of old with the Zion today. Kind of an interesting like take that. on the rainbow. You know, Bryce, before we go on, I just want to share what Joseph Smith said about the rainbow as contained in teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith said, I have asked of the Lord concerning his coming, and while asking the Lord, he gave a sign and said, In the days of Noah, I sent a bow in the heavens as a sign and token that in any year that the bow should be seen, the Lord would not come. But there should be seed time and harvest during that year. But whenever you see the bow withdrawn, it shall be a token that there shall be famine, pestilence, and great distress among the nations, and that the coming of the Messiah is not far distant. Joseph then goes on and he says, I will take the responsibility upon myself to prophesy in the name of the Lord that Christ will not come this year. And then Joseph says, go and read the scriptures and you cannot find anything that specifies the exact hour he would come and all that say so are false teachers. That's in Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 340 to 341. So along with that, we could talk about the nature of God's ability to engage in war and that creation is this like splitting of the chaos. The seglet noun keshet, which is what the word is for bow, is like a bow that you use when you go hunting or in war. And so it's almost portraying God also as a God of war because I'm going to set my bow in the cloud in verse 13. Kashti is my bow from Keshet. It's I'm going to put that in the cloud and I'm going to take a pause and we're going to hopefully have peace. And that's kind of riffing on Noah's name. Noah's name means peace or rest. And so even a, a lot of times, I don't, I, I don't say all the time, but a lot of times in the Old Testament, even the names of the characters 
are telling the story. It's so cool. And so this everlasting covenant that's happening in verse 16 and 17 is connected to all the stuff you're talking about. We're going to bring forth Zion. Now, if you go to verse 18, so from verse 18 to about verse 27, when I teach college students, that's what they want to talk about. They're like, please break this down because the story goes from, oh, I've heard this story before to what? What happened? And so in this story, uh, Noah in verse 20 is a husbandman and he plants a vineyard and he drinks wine. And then we have Ham. Remember, there's three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And Ham comes and saw the nakedness of his father. And then Noah wakes up in verse 24 and he curses Canaan, who isn't even there. I mean, that's really weird. Like, why are you cursing Canaan? Um, Hello, he's not even there. And if I'm Canaan, I'm like, what? Grandpa, why are you cursing me? Like, I'm not even part of this story. What What are you doing? And so there's some provocative things to think about. You see, in one account, Noah was in vision. Joseph Smith said this, as reported by William Allen to Charles Walker, Joseph Smith said that Noah isn't necessarily drunk, but he was in a visionary state. And then you get into this idea that he is in this tent. And so there's some use of this to say, well, there's an altar, they're making covenants, that maybe he's made a temple or a miniature tent or a a miniature tabernacle. And then you have wine. And then also remember that this is all in the context of things that they're to eat and eating and drinking and tents and altars. This is all temple stuff. And so Jeffrey Bradshaw, he says this, he says, how are we to understand the mention that Noah was drunken? Most rabbinical sources make no attempt to explain or justify, but instead roundly criticize Noah's actions. And then we read from Joseph that perhaps he was in vision. And this actually agrees with what's called the Genesis Apocryphon, which is another view of Genesis, which immediately after describing the ritual drinking of wine by Noah and his family, tells of a divine dream vision that revealed the fate of Noah's posterity. And we link this in the show notes and we take you to the Genesis Apocryphon. Now here's the problem. The Genesis Apocryphon is fragmented. Some of these scrolls have pieces that are missing, but in the link to it, we take you to the 13th chapter and it's on page 89 to 93. And if you scroll down to chapter 13 of the Genesis Apocryphon, verse eight, this is pretty fascinating stuff that when he drinks wine, we read, quote, I offered praise to the Lord of heaven to the most high, the great one who delivered us from destruction. And then it gets fragmented. Some of the the text is lost. We have about 11 lines missing, but it's interesting that in the vision that Noah has, he sees a tree, an olive tree, and he marvels at the beauty of it and its height and its majesty. Now here's my take. Like we don't know. We don't have the rest of the Genesis Apocryphon. It's fragmented. But my take is I like that. I like Joseph Smith's take. I like that this is a temple setting. And if we read it this way, then now maybe we're unpacking some things. Nakedness and covering are very temple-related issues. So if all of a sudden this is a temple idea, and we're talking about nakedness and covering and skins, now maybe we can see why there was a blessing and maybe there was a situation here that Noah had to correct. Yeah. Something, right? Like the account of his nakedness and the role that his sons played is certainly puzzling. I mean, obviously, this is where we get into uh, 
Maybe it's doubtful disputations, but this is where it gets really interesting. I think one of the things we can read from this is that the end of this section is a story about boundaries. You see, the Genesis narrative is setting strong boundaries on things like, what does it mean to be married? When is it appropriate to have intimate relations? What about property and kinship? What about inheritance law? And so this last part about Noah is about boundaries, specifically boundaries when it comes to intimacy and how they are observed and understood and the consequences for when they're violated. I think this is an etiological tale. And what I mean by that is this. If you lived in Israel and you were enemies with the Canaanites and there's all this rhetoric against the Canaanites, you might ask your parents, mom, dad, why do we hate the Canaanites? And I think the roots of it are traced to this story. An etiological tale tries to explain why things exist. And so to an ancient Israelite, they would trace it to this experience that Ham had with his father. I mean, whatever this means, to see the nakedness of your father can mean so many things. I mean, it could mean the relationship between Zeus and Kronos, where there's some of that stuff happening, like damaging your father. It could have stuff to do with to uncover the nakedness of your father could be to violate boundaries of intimacy in respect to your parents, so many different things. And so we include in some slides, some things that you can read to consider, because frankly, we don't know. There's a lot of rabbinical commentary on this, and there's scholarly papers on this, but something happened. And because of it, there's this outsider-insider group, and the, the descendants of Canaan are considered outside that group. And so verse 24 talks about that, that Canaan shall be his servant. Verse 24, Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. And he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brethren. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of Shem and Canaan shall be his servant. This to me, verse 26, is an etiological tale explaining why the descendants of Shem, because that is going to be Israel, that's going to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Israelites, it's going to help explain that enmity between them and the Canaanites. And I think this tale was used in that regard. I think that is probably the simplest way that we could kind of package the end of chapter nine. Chapter 10, we do a slide in the show notes. This is called the Table of Nations. And it's this idea that the descendants of Noah fill the earth and make 70 nations. And that was a common thing in the belief of these people that followed and read the Bible or that interpreted it or discussed it is that there were 70 nations in the earth. And it really kind of helps us understand some of the things happening in the New Testament. When Jesus commissions individuals to go preach the gospel to the world, he calls 70. And I think that's tied into this idea as found in Genesis 10. Yeah. And chapter 10, we divide the land. Chapter 11, we divide the languages which if we look at the flood as kind of a recreation, shortly after creation, we have the dividing of the earth like we saw the dividing of that river that flowed out of Eden. So that symbolism that we've seen before, that mortality is a place of division. Yeah. And if you go to chapter 11, Genesis chapter 11, it talks about everybody having one speech. In Hebrew, it's kind of cool how it talks about that the people were of one lip. And we kind of translate that as as speech. It's pretty fun. But the idea is that they're all of one language and one speech. And then they make this tower that is to reach into heaven. And I think back to the polemic, back to the idea that the authors of Genesis are basically saying, 
hey, the Israelites, we are the inheritors of the truth. And Babylon, they're the the impersonators. They, they don't really have what the real thing is. You see, because Babel is a pun on the word or idea for confusion. The Hebrew word Bilal means to mix or confound, and Babel is connected to Babylon. And so the writers of this text are basically saying that the people of Babylon are mixed in confusion. And so it's kind of a pun. I'm just going to read this by Nahum Sarna. He says this, Babylon, Hebrew Babel, was pronounced Babylim by the Mesopotamians. The name is apparently non-Semitic in origin and even maybe pre-Sumerian. But the Semitic inhabitants, by popular etymology, explained it as two separate Akkadian words, Bab and Ilim, meaning the gate of God. This interpretation refers to the role of the city as the great religious center. It also has mystical overtones connected with the concept of the navel of the earth. We've talked about that before. And the point at which heaven and earth meet. So the Hebrew author, by his uncomplimentary wordplay, substituting Balal for Babel, has replaced the gate of God concept with a confusion of speech and satirized thereby the pagan religious beliefs of the Babylonians. So Nahum Sarna is just laying out the argument that this is a story where the writer of the text is saying that the people of Babylon don't have access to the gate of God. They have access to confusion. And so if you look at this with that lens, and you also look at it with the lens of a temple, we have motifs of speech in verse 1. We have working in verse 3. Verse 4 says, let us build a tower, think temple, and notice where the tower is headed, to reach unto heaven that we may make us a name, that we may be great. In the temple of God, We want to go to heaven, but we receive the name of God. He gives us his name because he's great. And so it's inverted. Always an imitation, right? Even the Book of Mormon presents the tree and then the building as a fake version of the tree. So there's always this imitation. And so Babel is an imitation of Zion. So are you fooled by the imitation? Do you think this is how we get to heaven? By being great? Or do you think Enoch's way is the way we get to heaven? By remembering that God is great. That's a lesson that King Benjamin will harp on and flows all throughout the Book of Mormon. Is God great? Or is man great? And that goes right back to the pre-mortal life where Jesus says, I'll do the work and you get the glory. And Lucifer's plan was, I'll do the work, but I get the glory. All of these things keep staying tied together, as you're going to see throughout the Old Testament. Now, there's Noah. We hope that's been beneficial to you to study the flood and Noah. One last thought. We're about to talk about the main character of the Old Testament, and that's Abraham and his family. That's the focus. We're really just 12 chapters in to the whole Bible before we get to Abraham. And that main point about the covenant, Abraham is our connection to the covenant. And the one thing that has to happen in a patriarchal blessing is we have to be tied to Abraham and claim his blessings and receive his responsibilities. One of those blessings is that to the people of Abraham, God covenants, as it was with Noah, so shall it be with thee. Meaning, I will preserve the righteous. 
whatever it takes, an ark or me coming, I will preserve the righteous. And I think that's the take-home message, that as the children of Abraham, he has promised to preserve us if we are faithful to the covenant, just like he preserved Noah, and that we will stand again safe, protected, guarded with his name on us, having made covenants with him. And so may we remember Noah and the covenant that he obeyed and his preservation. And with that, Thank you for spending some time with us this week, and we will see you next week when we turn our attention to Father Abraham. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.